What's up, everyone? This week on the pod, we're going way back. The original Los Angeles punk rock shit. And uh, it's a nice tie-in because, uh, yeah, it's kind of the reason why I started the pod, was to interview original old-school people that I thought weren't getting enough shine and to paint the picture of, uh, you know, this big, beautiful beast, which is punk and hardcore. And uh, this ties in nicely because... This is the three-year anniversary of the pod, so congratulations, everyone. Thank you for uh, keeping it alive, All everyone that listens every week, and uh, you know the people that participate on the Instagrams and send emails and DMs and all that. That's stuff that keeps it going, and especially the Patreons. This would not exist without all of you. Um, thank you from the bottom of my heart. I appreciate the support. If that would have gone away at any point, the pod would have ended. If the popularity would have dropped significantly at any point, the pod would have ended. And if I didn't have the help of everyone that helps out every week, you know, uh, Dan Sant, Posse Chris, Ben Edge, Clevo, Pops, Episode 1, the legend Joe Rivas, Stu, and just everyone that, that passes through and helps. Uh, this is a group effort. This is not all me. So uh just want to say thank you for the support, and uh, let's get on with the pod. One hundred eighty five miles south, a hardcore punk rock podcast. What's up, everyone? This week on the pod, we are talking hardcore. Actually, we're going back. We're talking that first-gen Los Angeles punk rock. We're going to start it out with a starter kit from Ben Edge, and then we're going to bring on Cliff Roman from uh, The Weirdos to talk about what it was like to be there, and then we're going to do some other segments later. But helping out, you know him, you love him. It is the best-dressed man on the pod. It is Daniel Sant. What's up, Dan? Early man walked away as modern man took control. Also helping out, it is Ben Merlis, a.k.a. Ben Edge, a.k.a. Bedge. What's up, Ben? What's going on? All right, Ben, you got to get us up to speed. 1977, Los Angeles. What's happening? You know, son, you're not a kid anymore. Oh, no, I go to shows. Dad, I already know all this stuff. Well, they don't teach you about everything. At shows. Okay, Mr. Smarty Bands. So just listen. When boys and girls get a little older... They start getting interested in punk and hardcore subgenres. Starter kit. All right, I'm going to do my starter kit is all records that came out uh, from LA bands between 77 and 78. Very specific era. This is the mask era we like to talk about on the show. The thing that is, you know, gets uh, kind of sort of wiped off the map, map by what I call 1.5. So this is what happens immediately before that. Hollywood centric scene. Um, the germs, they came out of uh, West LA, uni high, uh, Pat smear and Darby crash BFF uh, Pat smear. You know, him from of course, Nirvana and Foo Fighters, but this is where he got to start. And Darby crash mythologized uh, to, to no end because he committed suicide at such a young age. Uh, but their second single lexicon devil, came out on Slash Records. It was the first thing that Slash Records ever put out. 
and it is uh, a work of art. And this, I picked the song Lexicon Devil from it, and I really hope it's on Spotify. I did not check. There are two versions of the song. One is on, it was re-recorded the next year for their album GI, which is also incredible. But um, this is sort of where you first hear the brilliance of the germs on uh, a recorded medium. The very poetic lyrics. Darby Crash had a, had a way with words. Um, great song, kind of uh, can't say enough about it. Uh, and then I'm going to move on to the weirdos cliff roman wrote this song in 1977 you'll hear all about it later we got the neutron bomb this is from their also from their second single 1978 danger house records we talk about this all the time on the show this is one of the biggest sounding uh punk records ever recorded in an era where there there weren't that many big sounding records. I'd say never mind the bollocks is huge that came out the year before that. But uh the Weirdos, one of the first LA punk bands, if not the first, definitely the first musically competent LA punk band. It took the germs a while to get going. Uh we got the Neutron Bomb. Uh we definitely have talked this to death. You all know what you all love it, or at least you should by now. I'd say if you if you can't vibe with Lexicon Devil or We Got the Neutron Bomb, uh, L.A. punk is not for you. And I would say probably punk as an entire genre of music is not for you. I think it would be fair to say. Moving on to The Bags. This was a band that was fronted by Alice Bag. Uh, f- she grew up in East L.A. They were more of a Hollywood-based band. Uh, Craig Lee's mom, she, uh, he was a guitarist of The Bags, was... Uh, famous for ha- being a television producer. I think she produced MASH or she directed MASH, which is, so you have a, you have real working class background with Alice and then, you know, silver spoon in mouth, Hollywood industry family with Craig Lee. And then they combine to uh, start one of the greatest punk bands ever from LA. The, I picked the song survive. This is off their single survive uh b-side is babylonian gorgon and this is also danger house records 1978 um man it's got this i think we've talked about this on the show before it's it's got this cool kind of like film noir like finger snapping um standing under a, a street light with your you know uh detective code on kind of kind of vibe and then it just busts into hard fast punk uh really interesting and then it goes back to that whole um, sort of unusual intro. That right. They're, they're and the, really... the second time you're uh, flipping a quarter underneath a lamppost. Exactly. That's that's what we're going for here. <laughs> There's really not much else like it. And um, I highly recommend Alice Bagg's autobiography, Violence Girl. It is a very interesting book. She had a rough upbringing and she found solace in the LA punk scene. Um, moving on to, and I was going to pick a Dill song and here's why I'm not picking it. Those guys are from Carlsbad, which is San Diego County. And then they moved to San Francisco. I thought at some point they had lived in LA, but since cliff Roman can't remember, they probably 
were not living in LA because he would know he has a photographic memory. So I'm not talking to talking dills, although they, they do have two seven inches, both on LA punk labels. I'm going screamers. Now, if we think that the weirdos were sort of the, uh, coulda, shoulda, woulda, if they had made an album in 1978, the screamers are even a more extreme example of that. They never even made a record of any sort. They never made a single. They were selling out the whiskey, but they, they never made a record. I think they were ambitious and they thought they would make an art film instead, which never even got finished. And then they broke up, but they are now officially released on, at least on streaming. I think their records, there's vinyl that came out too. If you I, look I bought on it on Spotify, vinyl, Ben. I bought it on vinyl within the last year. Well, there it is. Um, on Spotify, this is under Screamers Demo Hollywood 1977. That's what it's listed. And the song is called Peer Pressure. And the interesting thing about the Screamers is that they did not have a guitarist and they did not have a bassist. They had a drummer, a very angry singer, and they had two keyboard players, one guy playing a Fender Rhodes and one guy playing something called an Arp Odyssey. And so you figure uh, key- keyboards and uh, drums, uh, this is going to be whack. This isn't going to be hard. This isn't going to be the kind of punk rock I like. This shit is hard. This is angry ass punk music. Um, it is no cool cough by uh, or cough cool or whatever the fuck by the misfits. It, this is this is raging punk music so i have to throw them in here because they are one of the first and also they are singular there is no one else like them they are not trying to sound like the ramones or the damned or whatever um if i had to guess they i'd say they were influenced by the band suicide although maybe they might have even recorded this thing before suicide ever had a record out either so um the last, but certainly not least, the best-dressed man, Daniel Sant's favorite L.A. punk band. Dan, what am I going to pick? You've already... Well... Ooh. That's interesting, because you've already picked two of the absolute greatest, as far as I'm concerned. Give me a clue. Um, their fans tend to be of... Um, a sort of black cat tattoo fuzzy dice on the on the rear oh. view mirror varietal. You mean you mean Zach's favorite band, Social Distortion? No, no, no. Actually, X. I'm picking an X. Oh, one. yeah, because <laughs> I was I was going Pennywise, dude. <laughs> um, so X, their first single comes out on Danger House in I believe '78. It is Adult Books. The B side is We're Desperate. I'm picking the song We're Desperate. Both these songs get re-recorded on their second album, which comes out in the early 80s. But these are the OG versions. We're Desperate um, featured prominently in the documentary The Decline of Western Civilization. This is sort of like, um, you know, John Doe and Exine Cervenka are the two lead singers of the band. They sort of trade off lead vocals and then join in together. Uh, for the choruses, really interesting. Exine, not a good singer. John Doe is a good singer. Their voices combined make something incredible. 
So uh, it's kind of, kind of like this, the sum are greater than the parts. I hope I got that right. Um, this is sort of like the talking about their bohemian lifestyle. You know, we're, we, we can't pay the rent. We're about to get evicted. Our whole life is a wreck. Um, we're desperate. Get used to it. It's sort of like uh, kind of like the this theme song for the Bohemian. But Billy Zoom is probably my dad's age, so he was around way before punk. He is the guitarist, and he is extremely competent. The the X is always talked about as like th- they were the most musically proficient of of all these bands because they were a little bit older than everybody and had experience. Well, I don't know if X scene was in any bands before X, but th- they were no spring chickens when it came to playing music. And they really did a cool thing by combining uh, punk music with old school rock and roll music, uh, rockabilly music. I know now you'd be like, oh, psychobilly, gross. But no, I'm not talking about all the shit that came after them. Um, this is quintessential LA punk music. So to recap, Germs Lex- Lexicon Devil. Weirdos, we got the neutron bomb. Bags, survive. Screamers, peer pressure. X, we're desperate. And here are my honorables. I'm just going to name bands. The Skulls, the Dogs, the Controllers, the Dickies, Shock, the Eyes, the Plugs, the Alley Cats, and the Deadbeats. And if you want to get all this shit as easily as possible, Danger House Records has a singles box set. It's all on Spotify. It's on CD. It's on a seven-inch box set. And then there is a what records compilation called what stuff. And that is almost everything I mentioned. There's a few things maybe on bump that fall outside of that, but you have almost everything from this era um, with the exception of the few bands that made records, which would made albums, which would be the Dickies and the germs and the plugs. So there you go. That's your mission. Listen to this shit. Yeah, everything that's available on Spotify from Ben's uh, starter kit, we'll put it on the playlist. Go to 185milesouth.com, click that playlist link at the top of the page, and check out the music we're talking about. We'll toss it on there with everything else we talk about on this podcast. Dan, we're kind of dialing in, you know, if we're... It's basically all the stuff that came out before Nervous Breakdown, right? Do you have a favorite of, of all this stuff? Um, the germs and the weirdos are just top tier for me. Um, I I did enjoy um, Ben putting on a release that you basically had to have a time machine to go listen to until maybe like six months ago. <laughs> um, the screamers stuff, but it it's um, I mean nothing beats the the absolute power of we got the neutron bomb. Like that's just a golden song in any generation, in any genre, you know? Um, but I, there's, there's a lot of stuff that you mentioned in the, you know, in the rundown of other bands that are really good. Uh, ben was kidding me because I've ne- X has never sounded good to me. Like ever. I like John Doe in the film lost profits with ad rock, but that's about it. Yeah. X, X kind of missed me as well as, channel three like those are the two like classic old school bands from around there that they just never really connected with me but i need to you know this is all this music has merit you know and really 
most stuff that makes it to album has merit. Like people had to take the time to write songs, put it out. And uh, so it has some merit and I'm not trying to hate on the stuff. I just got to give it another try. And Ben made me a short X playlist a long time ago. Cause I asked him to, and I'm a dick and I still haven't listened to it. So right after who's do, I'm getting into X. What's up. All right. This week on the pod, we have Cliff Roman from the weirdos. How you doing Cliff? Doing great. How you doing? Doing great. Thanks so much for uh, taking the time to do this. Also helping out is Ben Edge, a.k.a. Bedge. And uh, Cliff, where did you grow up and how do you get into punk? And do you remember your first punk show? Well, I grew up in North Hollywood, California, for the most part, in Los Angeles. And I was born born in Los Angeles and raised in Los Angeles. And um, I got into punk through my interest in music. Um, when I was, um, uh, in high school, uh, or right after I graduated, graduated high school, I, um, went and saw the New York dolls, um, when I was about 18 or 19 years old. And then I saw after the dolls, um, Iggy and the Stooges. And also I saw David Bowie spiders from Mars. And these were all real big influences on me. But then when I saw the Ramones, um, uh, that I, I, I was convinced I had nothing to lose. I should start a band and I wanted to play punk rock music, whatever that was. And I was learning about the, the groups and reading about bands in New York, like television and, um, Bands in England like the Sex Pistols and the Clash and the Buzzcocks. I was buying records, and uh, I started writing some songs, and then I started the band. What publications were you reading about stuff in? Like, how could you get information about all these bands in those early, early years? Yeah, so we uh, through things like the British um, music papers. So I cl- bought, and I still have my big stack, my big collection of Melody Maker sounds and NME and magazines like, well, there's a magazine out of New York called punk. And then there was, um, other magazines. Um, and I would read stuff actually in the LA times about the sex pistols right on the, in the front section, you know, when they, um, use profanity on a TV show and, um, and when they, you know, did any outrageous stunts that seemed to make, make the, the headlines and not the headlines, but it would make it into the paper. So I was following that and I was reading, um, let's see, New York rocker was another one. And then, um, um, so those were the main, and, and then some, I was buying fanzines and bomb magazine as well. I was, I was collecting, reading, collecting bomb magazine. Could you find like punk at just a newsstand in LA? Punk, I think, I'm trying to remember where I used to buy it. I might have bought punk at a record store, like um, there was a, a store called Moby Disc, where I used to go and buy my records. Right they on. used to have, right next to the register, a little shoebox with the latest 45s from England. And it said punk on it, you know. So that's where I bought the first Clash single, the first Sex Pistols single, the first uh, Buzzcock single. That is so cool. Cliff, did you ever go to any punk shows in LA before the weirdos existed? Can you kind of describe what the 
the okay. scene was like or or if so you Zach, yeah. yeah yeah there were no punk shows before the weirdos existed perfect so then the if you first just- punk show was when the weirdos played on 45 years ago on april 16 at the orpheum theater and we played with the zeros and the germs and in the audience was the damned they just got into town to do a show and also in the audience were um kim fowley rodney bingenheimer and greg shaw the screamers a bunch of musicians artists photographers and that was um no one is there i don't know of any other punk show before that you know i did see the Ramones opened for the Flame and Groovies, and then they came back to L.A. and played the Whiskey, the Starwood, a few other shows we went to. And um, um, But they were from New York. So, um, you know, that was probably, you know, and, and then before them, they weren't called a punk band, but there was, you know, Iggy and the Stooges. When Raw Power came out, I saw them at the Whiskey. And then before that, when the New York Dolls' first album came out, they played the Whiskey. And I and I went and saw them, um, their first show there at the Whiskey. So but there was no punk. There was no punk scene. There was no local punk scene at all. It all started to coalesce after we did that show on April 16th, 1977. So can you describe... Um the music scene in LA before yes. the weird, the, before the weirdos existed, yes. the local LA bands, who were yes. they? What kind of music were they? So, playing? okay. So, you know, there was for a period, um, 74, 75 was glam rock or glitter. And also, um, Roddy Bingenheimer had the English disco club on sunset Boulevard where we used to go. And, um, this is when I'm like, you know, 18, 19, 20 years old. And, um, and um, the scene was, you know, I remember seeing bands like there was bands like the Runaways, the Quick, the Motels, and um, the Zippers. And they weren't really considered punk rock bands. No, no one was using the word punk rock. And um, that sort of maybe came out of New York with Richard Hell and and television and that scene at CBGB's and maybe uh, the, the, you know, the English bands like the sex pistols, the clash and the buzzcocks and the damned. And they started, we started reading about punk rock in the British papers first, but there was no, there was no organized scene. There was, it was never really organized, but what happened was we do this show. It's the first germ show. It's the first we had done two shows leading up to this show. Our very first show, Zach, was on April 2nd, 1977. We played with The Nerves and a couple other bands, and that was our first show. We had no drummer. The Nerves discovered us when we were rehearsing above the soundstage that they used for their, their show, and they, they heard us playing and invited us to play with them at their show. So um, we had no drummer. It was just uh, me on guitar, a bass player, another guitarist, and our singer, John Denny. And it was the four original weirdos, Dave Trout on bass, Dick Stenny on guitar, myself on guitar, and John Denny on vocals. And we had the look, our look together, 
And a week later, we do two shows at the Orpheum Theater on Sunset Boulevard across the street from the from Tower Records. And it's the, the, the Nerves, the Weirdos, and the Zippers. Now, the Nerves and the Zippers usually don't show up on lists of L.A. punk rock bands. They might, but usually I don't see them. And they, they, these, our second show, we did like two nights, two shows a night, still no drummer. And we were wearing our paint splattered clothes. Our hair was cropped short. We were, we, we had the look together. We were, we had the sound together and um, we were getting noticed. And, um, 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 a photographer named Debbie Scow introduced us to Nikki Beat, a drummer who had just left a band called Venus and the Razorblades. And they were one of those bands that was also in LA at the time that was sort of a rock band playing the clubs like the Starwood or the Whiskey or opening for bands that came into town. And that they, they weren't called really called punk bands back then. And um, so Nikki joins our band. We um, go to, we're supposed to do the show with the Nerves and the Zippers and a band from San Diego called the Zeros. And at the last minute, the Nerves and the Zippers drop out of the show. We wanted to still play because we were on a roll. We have like five sets under our belt. And we got a drummer now, a really good drummer, Nikki Beat Alexander. And, um, and, um, we go to a, a day or two before the show, I, what the nerves and the zero zippers drop out. I go down to this club, the Orpheum. It's not a club. It's a theater. I go down there and I pay the $90 so we could do the show. We'd already made the flyers and did them. And the flyers are saying nerves, weirdos, zippers, and zeros. And on August, um, I'm sorry, April 16 at the Orpheum. And so we, um, we, I paid the $90 to get the theater so we could do the show. A few days before that, we go to the opening of Bomp Records and we run into the Germs. And they're like, well, we're a band. We're called the Germs. They had these handmade shirts, you know, that said Germs. And uh, we decided, to, we asked them if they'd want to perform with us, you know, the, that, that coming Saturday night. So they said, well, we're not really ready. We don't, we can't play. We haven't rehearsed and I, we just booked them anyways. <laughs> so, um, so now I have, you know, the weirdos, the zeros and the germs and the weirdos with our drummer, Nikki uh, beat Alexander. And there we are. We do our show with um, the damned in the audience. They, they, we, I didn't know. I didn't invite them. They just show up. The place, uh, the germs get kicked out of the building because um, Darby, who was called Bobby Pin then, um, put the microphone in a jar of peanut butter. And sitting in the audience holding the jar of peanut butter is Belinda Carlisle. And in the germs, you know, is uh, Pat Smear. You know, they're both in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame now. Uh, Belinda with the Go-Go's and Pat Smear with not only Nirvana, but also the Foo Fighters. So the germs get kicked out by the owner of the theater because they were throwing peanut butter around. And at that point there weren't, there were no one was in the theater. So, so they go across the street to tower records 
Then the zeros play. Now the theater is about a third full and the zeros are like this. They look like the Standells or something like that. And they play really cool music and everyone really liked the zeros. So they were great. They went on to be considered uh, an LA punk rock band. They're actually from the San Diego area and uh, would do many shows with us and many, all the shows, all the punk rock shows in LA in 1977 and on. And, and then we come on. The place was packed now. Word had gotten out about the weirdos through Rodney Bingenheimer. Uh, my my girlfriend, uh, Gracie, had called him uh, the Sunday before and, and was telling him about the weirdos. And he was like, yeah, I'm going to go to that show. And then also Greg Shaw was there from Bomp Records and Kim Fowley, who was the producer of The Runaways and their manager. And you know, uh, we do our set with Nikki on drums and then Captain Sensible, the bass player of the damned asked to do play with us for an encore. So he gets on stage and we, we just sort of like do a rendition of pushing too hard by the seeds. And he's playing along with us to the amusement of the rest of the band members and his manager sitting there in the audience. Well, the next day I get a phone call from Greg Shaw telling me that we made history. And that Sunday, Ronnie Bingenheimer starts talking about, you know, the punk show with the weirdos and the zeros and the germs. And the rest is history. People went, it's sort of, people tell me, and the screamers were there in the audience also. After the show, uh, John, Denny, and I are talking for quite a while with uh, the screamers behind the theater. And that was the first time we met them. And they were one of the first uh, wave of LA punk rock bands. The first, the first wave of LA punk rock bands was the Weirdos, the Zeros, the Germs, a band called the Dills, and um, that I think that's pretty much like the first wave of LA punk rock bands. And the Screamers, yeah, and yeah. The Screamers, right on. And so then, so then you know. 1977 was the start of it. And, and, you know, I can, I can talk about what happened next. If you, if you, if you're interested. I actually wanted to know um, what Darby crash was like as a person. Did you know him very well? Well, yes, he was very soft spoken, very shy, extremely shy, very, very nice. And then he had this persona on stage. Um, he was always like cutting himself. Um, um, there were, you know, hurting himself. Um, they never rehearsed. They were, I, I was fascinated by them and, and talked to Darby a lot. He was really good at writing lyrics. He even, once he, he typed up all his lyrics and put a, 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 a safety pin through them and, and gave it to me. And I remember reading his lyrics and thinking they were brilliant and, but they couldn't, there were, it was so early in the development of the germs, they couldn't get through a show without getting, kicked off the stage and that happened time and time again that that year and then a little later on maybe they got their shit together and they they could get through a set and you know and then they didn't really get it together until they recorded their that album for slash right and, um but but darby was um he was a very cool guy his name was jan breen and he went to uni high school and that's where he met um pat smear Right. I forget Pat's names, George, uh, something, um, Ruthenberg, Ruthenberg. Right. So, and then they knew, uh, Belinda Carlisle was just this girl. We all knew that was a friend of the germs. And I think she had a nickname Dottie danger or something like that. And, um, I knew 
I knew Lorna. I knew all of them. They were, we were, we were, you know, they even gave me, um, have you ever heard of the germ burn? Yeah. Yes. I got one on my left wrist. You still have it? Yep. Wow. Um, It hurt. So I pulled away and it's kind of light, but it's still there. I can find it. (laughs) Amazing. When the weirdos started, you, you put together this band with the Denny brothers um, what's your, what are your primary musical influences? What are you aiming for? What are you trying to get the well, band to sound like or look like? The thing that really ignited us was when I saw, well, you know, I really liked the New York Dolls and Iggy and the Stooges. And before that, I had, I had a varied musical taste. I was into music since I was, I was an uh, eight-year-old boy. Um, I learned clarinet. My family is a family of musicians. My grandfather played clarinet. My mom played piano. My grandmother played piano. Everyone played an instrument instrument in my family. And, you know, I, I learned, I learned, I started learning classical music and how to read music. And then I, I got a saxophone and then I was in a band. I was always in a band playing sax when I was in high school and um, we'd play parties and, um, um, we like to play like, you know, uh, James um, Brown. We'd play James Brown. We'd play Electric Flag. We'd play, um, you know, whatever, you know, like Spirit, uh, whatever, you know, whatever we liked. We, we had, I was in, always in a band or always playing with kids my age who were musicians. I was a musician and an artist. I didn't hang out really with the, the jocks. And, uh, and so growing up, I listened to the radio I liked Bob Dylan, the Rolling Stones. I loved the Beatles. I liked the Kinks. Then I liked, you know, Jimi Hendrix. I liked the Grateful Dead. I liked old blues. I liked the Who. I, I, you know, I, I, I liked jazz. I liked uh, modern music. I had, I had very taste. I used to go to, you know, see jazz musicians when I was in high school. And, uh, or I'd go to the Ashgrove and see folk music or blues, you know, and, and, or I'd go to the whiskey. I, I saw the Kinks play the whiskey, you know, in 1969 when they, um, you know, when they were touring for their Arthur album. And um, uh, so I was, I was always buying, and I was buying records. And then um, when I was in college, I started buying used records and bands like, you know, I started collecting like the Standells and, you know, uh, Paul Revere and the Raiders and uh, the Monkees and the Beach Boys and, and, and then the Velvet Underground. So th- I get to the Velvet Underground and Lou Reed, David Bowie, T-Rex, Roxy Music. And then I'm into the New York Dolls and Iggy and the Stooges. So uh, Raw Power was, I I loved Raw Power, but I couldn't play. James Williamson was like nuts. I couldn't play that stuff. I was just learning how to play guitar. But then the Ramones come out with their first album. And I'm like, I discovered the bar chord and how to, I could write songs. And I wrote about um, uh, five or six songs that inspired John Denny. He uh, collaborated with me on a couple songs. It also inspired Dave Trout. I started the band with Dave Trout. Then we added John Denny. John, I knew from high school. Dave, I met at CalArts. I was a student at California Institute of the Arts. Um, and um, and Dix is John's brother. So uh, 
So it was just the four of us. That was the nucleus of the band. And then we added uh, Nikki beat Alexander on drums. And that completed the original weirdos. You and you and John went to North Hollywood high. Yes. Go Huskies. Huskies. All right. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the, that speaking, I, I, of, had, I had quite a, an education there. North Hollywood high was amazing. Yeah. You know, I, when I grew up I, in North Hollywood, that was North Hollywood. It was where everyone who worked in studios or music, their family, the, you know, that's where they bought houses with their kids. So all my friends, their parents were, were involved in the, either the movie industry or the music industry. And, you know, we were right there, right in the middle of it. And um, yeah, John Denny, I met at high school. And then I met, you know, Dix, you know, John, John Denny and I were really good friends. And like his mother was an actress, you know, she was, uh, Dodo Denny was in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. She was one of the moms. Wow. And so she was like my second mother. And um, John was an artist. Dix was an artist. I was an artist. Dave Trout was an artist. We did all our flyers. We designed our clothes. And uh, we were like a do-it-yourself band, like the first one. The first one. We were like, you know, Spanky and our gang when they put on a show. Hey, kids, let's put on a show. (laughs) <laughs> that's what it was really like you know who it. told me that you know who told me that tomato du plenty that's how he described the weirdos wow you guys are like you guys are like spanky in our game when they put on a show <laughs> you need the little dog um but when you were talking about songwriting i'm just curious about mm-hmm. the let's drill down into those the first yeah. couple years of the, of the weirdos yes. and which songs who wrote which songs like um the song Teenage, who wrote wrote, that one? Okay, I wrote all the songs and all the music for the Weirdos, just about every single song. And I I wrote, I was attempting to write songs. I I bought a guitar, I bought an amp. I self-taught myself on guitars. Friends who knew how to guitar showed me a few chords. Um, I, um, I attempted writing songs. I had a little Sony cassette tape recorder. Um, I'd sit there and I'd attempt to write songs. I'd come up with titles. I'd work backwards from a title, you know, and I, I, you know, just started writing songs. At some point I figured out how to, how to write a, a verse and a chorus. And I started putting songs together. My, and I liked the, what I, my main, the thing that really influenced me was the Ramones because I liked the way I said, you know, when I heard them, I was like, wait, I can play like that. Because, you know, I was not a virtuoso guitarist. I was self-taught. And I, I just started putting songs together, like A Life of Crime was one of the first songs I wrote. Do you know that song, A Life of Crime? Yes. And then the next song I write is um, I'm Not Like You. And then the next song I write is Teenage. And every time I write a song, I'm thinking – of some sort of influence. It could be the Kinks, the Who, Eddie Cochran. It could be the Velvet Underground. It might've been something I picked up from the Ramones or the Sex Pistols or the Clash or the Buzzcocks or, or Link Ray or Dwayne Eddy or, um, um, you know, surf guitar, uh, Dick Dale, like Dick Dale. And so I, I, um, or, you know, or the Who and, and, and even maybe the stones, you know, so I just sort of, I kind of learned how to put together a song where there was a beginning, a middle and an end. And so I would write intro 
I would write a verse. I would come up with a chorus. I'd come up with a bridge. I'd come up with the solo. I'd come up with the hook. I'd come up with the ending. And, you know, um, I would work on the dynamics of the song too. And, and, you know, um, so, so we got the weirdos were known as a really tight unit. We, we rehearsed a lot and we were really tight and we could, we could do false endings like teenage had a false ending and um, we could be real dynamic. We could uh, everyone, when they, they didn't know how to dance, they, you know, they pogoed, you know, at the go-go that started with weirdos pogoing with the, you know, at the go-go where we're, you know, everyone would come see us and they, they, on the dance floor, they could just, all they could do is dance vertical to the music, you know, just jump up and down. They were pogoing. Yeah. But, um, but so we, I always thought we, we uh, the weirdos was, you know, like, okay, you want to have a good time? want to have fun? You want to rock out? You want to, and, and our lyrics and title, our lyrics and our songs were sort of either had to do with irony or uh, a topic, you know, current topics or feminism, you know, we we're, or, or, um, you know, you know, uh, important issues or, um, um, you know, uh, you know, or, or just things that were humorous that just like, you know, we'd like wrote a song, like I dig your hole and people thought that it was just, you know, funny and, uh, or do the dance, which, and, and I, we, we liked minimal lyrics like the Ramones. And I also like, I, I liked the way the songs were real fast and there were no guitar solos. So mm-hmm. we sort of came up with our own sort of style based on, those influences, but so I was you, the I was the main songwriter. You, but John, you said John helped with lyrics. Yeah, John would. Uh, John and I collaborated on lyrics many times. I would come up with the title, maybe a chorus, maybe of a, a few verses, and then John would would add a few lines. And so that includes uh, "Teenage Destroy All Music," "Life of Crime," "Why Do You Exist," "Solitary Confinement," "Neutron Bomb." That's all you who wrote the music to those songs, right? I write the music. I wrote. I wrote. A Life of Crime, Destroy All Music, the lyrics and the music, Teenage, I'm Not Like You. Um, and, um, you know, John and I collaborated on songs like Message from the Underworld and Solitary Confinement, and we got the Neutron Bomb. Okay. Um, okay. So, uh, let's move to that first seven inch, the first single on right. Bomb. Mm-hmm. Uh, Craig Leon produced it and he's famous for doing the first Ramones album that you love so much. Yeah, how about that? So, so um, I meet, I, I, we, we cut, we, we record a demo of four songs, Teenage, Destroy All Music, A Life of Crime, and a song called Why Do You Exist? And I take it to Greg Shaw. He's like, this sounds great. We could put this out. I was like, we were like, no, we think we can do better. And he go. He tells me that um, he can get Craig Leon because Craig Leon owed owed him a favor. Uh, Greg, I apparently used to he used to manage a band called the Flame and Groovies, um, um, a really incredible band. And um, uh, he somehow um, Craig Leon owed him a favor, so he flies Craig Leon out in August he lines up a studio, a home studio called salty dog in Silmar. And it's this, the, we go to record destroy our music. The night Elvis Presley is found dead. And, 
Um, so there we are. We're our, we 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 were, we did our first single with Bomp, Destroy All Music. We also designed the record sleeve and the label. I designed the label, and John Denny did the record sleeve uh, and the artwork and the logo. And um, um, we we did cut three tracks with Craig Leon. So it's actually a seven inch EP with three three tracks. And the the A side is Destroy All Music. And the my I, the idea for Destroy All Music came to me when I watched a movie. I used to like to watch science fiction and monster movies. There was a movie called Destroy All Monsters. So I just switched it to Destroy All Music. And um, the the theme in that song is, you know, how how there's Muzak, you know, Muzak was big and and music rock music had gotten really slick. And, you know, it, it, it was like, it, it wasn't, wasn't what we wanted to hear. The music we wanted to hear wasn't getting promoted. So we, I ripped up my tickets to see ELO, <laughs> broke all my <laughs> records in my stereo and, uh, you know, destroy all music. You just can't use it. So, um, that, and then we we record a life of crime, a life of crime. You know, I'll look on YouTube, I'll, I'll I'll search a life of crime, and there'll be like you know a whole bunch of people have covered that song, and put it out on YouTube. So that's a real popular song that gets covered. And the um, classic. That's a classic, right? A lot of tell me, a lot of people tell me that one and destroy all music are really favorites. And you know, so a life of uh, destroyal music comes out on Bomp, and we're one of now we're one of like you know there's only like about nine punk records in existence at that point. You know, there's the Ramones, maybe their first and second album. There's the Damned first album. There's you know, the Clash put a single out. The Sex Pistols put a couple singles out, and the Buzzcocks. And you know, there's the Saints album. And um, rest in peace, Chris Bailey from the Saints. He just passed away. And, um, you know, that was about it. You know, that was about it. You know, the, the, the Germs put out a single, which was incredible, called Forming before us. And the Dills put out a single, um, I think it was, I can't remember which one it was. I Hate the Rich. I'm not sure. That was it, yeah. Yeah. And those were on What Records. So they kind of got out ahead of us. And then right around the same time Devo was in town, they did a record with Bomp, and so did the Zeros. So um, we were just one of the early releases. Um, Cliff, the first seven inch is great, but the solitary confinement and that we got the new drum bomb seven inch, like that thing is ridiculous. It's one of the greatest sounding albums ever on this podcast. We've had arguments over what's better side A side B. I'd like you to anything you remember about like that writing or recording process. Yes. yes if you okay. want to dial into it, there's nothing too nerdy. Every detail we'd love it. Yeah. Okay. So I'm sitting in my living room. Um, I had read an article um, about the neutron bomb. So, you know, it's the cold war still, this is 1977. It's the cold war. It's probably late 77, um, maybe October around October. Or so 77, I remember I'm sitting there and I'm like, I'm thinking, you know, about the neutron bomb and I come up with a title. We got the neutron bomb and I start writing lyrics. Um, we're going to drop it all over the place. You're going to get it on your face. 
United Nations and NATO won't do. It's just the red, white, and blue. It was very sarcastic. And, you know, um, I, you know, I, it was along the lines of how we would write songs. And, um, you know, we don't know you. We don't know what you mean. We, we don't want you. We want your machines. So the neutron bomb, say if the, if the Soviet army, like, or the Soviet bloc army attacked towards the Western, you know, West towards Eastern Europe, they were going to drop neutron bombs. It would kill everyone in the tanks and the vehicles, but leave the, the tanks and vehicles in nice conditions so they could be used against the Soviets. That was the whole idea of the neutron bomb. So, um, and then, you know, the course to that, we don't want it. We don't want it, but we got it anyway. I think I came up with that. John came up with a few of the lines too. And I was just sitting there and it just came to me. Um, I think I was working on the, the verse. We got the neutron bomb, you know, I was working on that. And then, and then, you know, we're going to drop it all over the place. So I'm, I got the verse happening and I got, and then I, I, I thought, a, a nice, I wanted the, the first few notes just to be, you know, like a bomb had hit. So that's why you hear those first three chords, blang, blang, blang. And I wrote that whole intro. It's kind of intricate, you know, so we're, you know, it's like a D A E and then, um, um, a E D A E and then back to D D D D D D A D D D D D A and then down to E bomb ba da 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 da. So you know, I wrote this. the The intro was pretty intricate. You know, um, uh, I remember we we after we recorded it, and then we we ended up recording. We we first played it. This is interesting. The first time we ever played it uh, was. We were we were doing a um, we did a show with Crime in San Francisco on Halloween. That's the first time we played it live, and then we didn't have any shows in L.A. But we had an interview on a radio broadcast with Richard Meltzer, who was a DJ for KPFK. So on Thanksgiving night, he has us on, interviews us, and we play live in the studio. And we that's we we played it live that night. I remember doing that. And um, then we went, uh, we recorded it um, late in 1977 with this label Danger House Records that kind of started up because the whole, the whole punk thing in LA started coalescing around several things. It was coalescing around the little record companies like What Records, Bomp Records, and Danger House was coalescing around Sunday matinee shows at the Whiskey A Go-Go. That's how they did the punk shows. It was coalescing around um, the uh, Canterbury apartments where punks started just moving in. It was coalescing around the mask, uh, the mask, which was um, a basement uh, rehearsal hall uh, performance space for punk bands under the Pussycat Theater on Hollywood Boulevard. And um, it started coalescing around Slash Magazine, Flipside Magazine, fanzines, and um, and shows at the Whiskey, the Starwood, 
and um, we and then we were doing shows like at the Elks Elks Lodge on Larchmont, um, at uh, Myron's Ballroom. You know, it was all do it yourself. Um, you know, we had to promote our own shows. We had to make our own flyers, make our own clothes. Now back to neutron bomb. I kind of got off on a tangent there, but we all, you know, solitary confinement that came before neutron bomb. Now solitary confinement. I wanted a song that descended those three chords. You know, and so I think, I think that that song has a great kind of, it has a great verse, you know, so you're I'm go- descending those three chords and, um, and then you go to the verse. I mean, that's the verse. And then you go to the chorus. I'm in da, 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 da. I'm in da, 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 da. And, and the title came from a friend of mine. He said, Hey, solitary confinement would be a good title. I said, yeah, that, well, that would be good. So kind of wrote, John came up with the lyrics for that. I brought the title to it and the music. And what do you, um, Cliff, what do you remember about that recording though? Cause it sounds so big. Okay. And, so, uh, and it's kind of, it, it has an I, interesting name, right? It's kitchen sink studios. Right. So kitchen sink. Yeah. Kitchen sink studios was a 16 track studio on sunset Boulevard, just East of Western. And it was in an old house and uh, right there on sunset Boulevard was the entrance. So we walk in and there's a, t- it's a tiny studio but the guy who ran it was really cool. Danger House was doing all their recordings there. They did, you know, the Dills. They did the um, uh, Alley Cats. They did the Avengers. They did the Deadbeats there. They did, you know, everything was done at Kitchen Sink for, for Danger House Records. And um, so we go in there and we lay down the basic tracks. We got the uh, basic tracks, you know, the bass, drums, and rhythm guitars. I do remember using my, I had a small Fender like Princeton amp and I thought it was kind of cool that, that we used that amp. Um, I played my, I was playing a Vox guitar that kind of, we, I forgot to mention my, I had this vintage Vox guitar with a switch on it. It had a built-in distortion. So when I, I found this guitar, I bought it for about 130 bucks at Valley Arts Guitar and I plug it in and I turn on the distortion and it had the sound I wanted. And it had a nice sort of, it, it, it really, if I hit a power chord, it would sustain into a nice feedback sound. So I, I, I really paid attention to when I played, I, I would have to stand a certain way to get that. I'd have this invisible connection between the amp. And, you know, if I move the guitar just right, I'd get this beautiful sustain and feedback. And, um, but, you know, another thing about the weirdos, we were brand new. We didn't know what the hell we were doing. (laughs) We barely knew how to tune our guitars and how to control, how to use an amp and dial, dial in a sound, you know? So we were just, we sort of grew up right on stage in front of everybody's eyes. That record just sounds so much bigger than anything else. So it sounds I, bigger than either Dill's record. And I'm just wondering what yeah, went into that. Is it just think, a, okay, a happy accident or that's a good that's a good question. So how did we get that big sound? I think we I think we did the basic tracks, then we we overdubbed the guitars a second time, and then we added the some of Dick's doing some lead guitar. And it just 
it somehow we got a nice big sound. Right. Um, and we weren't using like Marshall stacks. We weren't in a big room. We were, I used a little fender practice amp and we mic'd that. And I was using the Vox guitar with the distortion switch on. Dick's probably played through a Marshall head and, and four twelves and they mic'd that. So he had a pretty big sound. Okay. Dick, Stan- Dick Stanny had like the most awesome guitar sound. I mean, he was brilliant guitarist. Um, he was like not, he was just a teenager when he joined us that year in 1977, he was still a teenager. And uh, so, I, remember, um, I remember I called him up. I said, Hey Dix, John, John said you're, you, I knew he was a good guitarist. Cause I, I used to hang out at John's house all the time. They had a, his parents lived near Venice, near, um, um, Will, um, you know, uh, Will, what's his name? That Will Rogers beach, you know, you know, in, near Malibu, Will Rogers Beach, near Santa Monica. And um, I'd go there, and they had this little room. John and Dix had a bunk bed in, like, a a tiny room. It was almost like a walk-in closet converted to a bedroom. And uh, we would play records in there, and Dix would be sitting there, and he could play, like, anything. He could play, you know, like, like you know, Led Zeppelin guitar licks and stuff, you know, um, real complicated stuff. He was a really good guitarist, and he was just this kid. Right. But but he had a really big sound, and I would play. I used to play through a Fender Twin Reverb, but I really I I remember using just that little amp, and they mic'd it, and they just like got the guitars to roar on that on that record. I don't think we doubled the bass, um, yeah. and the you know the drums drums are mic'd were mic'd real nice. We were really happy with that sound. I mean, it was like a one once in a lifetime thing, you know, I don't think we ever got that sound ever again. Yeah. We talk about a lot on the podcast about how we wish you had just recorded every song you knew in that session. That way you'd have, we should have the best version of every weirdo song. Right. Right. We should have, we were, we were probably at our peak at that point. And, um, um, you know, uh, we, the record came out, the record came out just after just like February of 78. The record didn't come out until February 78. I remember we finished mixing the record and we hopped in the car and drove up to San Francisco so we could see the sex pistols the next night at Winterland, which we did. And then um, the record comes out. Um, Roddy played it. uh, K rock played it. And we, so we got a little bit of airplay, you know, back then K rock was AM and FM. And then it helped when we played the whiskey, we got a nice crowd. I ran ads on K rock, K rock too, you know, weirdos at the whiskey, you know, and they would play neutron bomb. And we got, I remember we, we had a real nice, nice um, concert there right after neutron bomb came out at the whiskey. And, um, you know, at towards the end, but towards the end of 1977 and early 78, I had also written some other really good songs. We were always a step ahead of everyone else. And the band, yes, we should have recorded the whole, a whole album right then and there. That was, we, we always thought we were going to get signed and then we would record an album, but it never happened. And, you know, there we were in Los Angeles, Capitol Records, Warner Brothers Records, Reprise Records, CBS, everyone's there, Arista, you know, all the record companies. 
and and you know uh, Chrysalis, and we couldn't get a deal because um, Warner Brothers signed the pistols, and they were like, "Well, we don't need another Sex Pistols," and we weren't really another Sex Pistols, but you know we were the weirdos, and um, you know we we just couldn't catch a break. We we even re- recorded a second version of Neutron Bomb and a track "It Means Nothing." Um, as a demo and shopped it around, but to no avail. Yeah, Cliff, and, there was actually a rumor I heard once that uh, you guys had a little bit of beef with the Dickies because they got a major label. Is there any truth to that? No, we. In fact, we were we never had a beef with the Dickies. the The Dickies came after the Weirdos. They kind of, you know, some bands kind of looked at us for inspiration and ideas and. Um, you know, obviously, you, you know, if you look at the weirdos and then you look at the Dickies, you know, especially the early Dickies, um, you know, they, they, you know, the, the looks are similar, the, the tempos, some of the songs, but the Dickies, the Dickies were really good. They were, they, they had, they had help from people like Steve, Stephen Huffstetter, one of the great, great guitarists from the LA punk rock scene. He was in the quick. And he helped Stan Lee get his sound together and write some, you know, write some of the songs. They mainly covered songs. That was their, their main thing. If you, if you look at like all their early releases were all, you know, sound of silence, uh, paranoid. Um, they just covered songs, Gigantor. That was my favorite. And I was kind of friends with um, the keyboard player, um, uh, Chuck Wagon. Chuck Wagon, yeah. Yeah. And um, you know, we used to like borrow gear, you know, he I remember he lent me his his electric piano or his keyboard and then he he sadly he died, you know. And um but yeah. Yeah, there was never you know, we 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 even opened or did we were packaged with the Dickies at clubs you know, and, and venues. So, um, you know, I, I never had, I never had, you know, any big issue with the Dickies. I mean, you know, they they, they, they got signed and, um, to A&M records and, um, put out some good records. We even, we even their manager, John, uh, Hugh, Hewlett was our manager for a period too. In 1979, he recorded demos for us. He tried to get us signed. He tried to put a record label together and have us on the label. And nothing ever really, you know, happened. So, um, you know, the band only lasted for a short period. The Weirdos, our year was 1977. Because we we do that show at the Orpheum. Then we're asked to play the Whiskey by Kim Fowley for his New Wave Rock and Roll Showcase. From there, we get photographed. They ask us to come back a second night, and then we get photographed backstage, and the photo appears in Time Magazine in an article on punk rock, the very first article on punk rock in Time Magazine in the July issue of 1977 titled Youth Crime. <laughs> and then um, and then we, we're, we do our record um, on uh, – and then Slash Magazine puts John on the cover of their second issue, and they interview us. And then um, we're, 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 we're booked to headline the Whiskey. 
We're booked to support the runaways at the whiskey. We're booked to play. We, oh, we do, we, we do a big show when we get signed with Bomp. Greg Shaw puts on a show at Myron's Ballroom. So it's the weirdos with this new band in town called Devo opening for us. And um, the Dills, I asked to put the Dills on the, on the show. And that was in uh, August, the summer of 77. And then we're by September, we have our single out destroy all music on bomb. We're doing lots of press and um, we play uh, the Hollywood Palladium with Blondie and Devo opening for us. (laughs) And uh, that was like, you know, that sort of like was the culmination of everything, that big show at, in September of 1977. Cliff, back to the Neutron Bomb, uh, yeah. there was another band from L.A. called The Controllers. Right. And they, right. Had a ba- uh, they had a song called Neutron Bomb. Did yours come first, and was there any sort of rivalry over like that name? Well, you know, unbeknownst to me, they wrote a song called Neutron Bomb. I had no idea. And... So they always claim, oh, the weirdos copied us. But I had, I didn't know they had a song called New Drum Bomb. I was surprised when I heard that. So um, I don't know. Have you heard, heard their version of Neutron Bomb? Yes. How does it compare to our version? We got not, the Neutron Bomb. It's not as good because pretty much nothing in the world is as good as your version of <laughs> New Drum Bomb. Right? Okay. So it's maybe, still good. Maybe if there's, maybe they were a little jealous. I didn't, I, I didn't even pay attention to that. You know, I remember one day we were joking around maybe with Stingray and, um, and uh, the guitarist from the controllers um, kid. Um, Spike, Kid Spike. Kid Spike. Yeah. You know, they would just sort of like, you know, try to make a big deal about it. <coughs> but I didn't really pay attention to that. But I I did not go I did not take the title from their record that I thought of myself. That's cool, man. We're team weirdos all day. Oh, cool. While we're, <laughs> we're while we're talking about the old stuff, let me just knock one more out of the way. Um, all right. Can you describe what the mask was like? Sure. So the mask was basically um, a big basement underneath the Pussycat Theater on Hollywood Boulevard. Now the building was the, was the, um, there was a, a director of, a, a famous director named DeMille. What was his first name? Uh, Cecil, Cecil. Yep. So I believe, I think it was the Cecil, Cecil B. DeMille building and, uh, Brendan Mullen, who I didn't, I didn't know, but during the summer of 1977, he found the space, he rented it out and then he started a rehearsal space. And, um, we started to hear about it. Now, look, we're already like headlining the whiskey, the Starwood, uh, the pot. We play the Hollywood Palladium, Myron's Ballroom, uh, the Slash Benefit. I mean, we're and and you know to play the mask was just the mask was just you couldn't you know they didn't charge anything. There was no it was you go down it was down you go down into the cellar and it was this labyrinth of concrete rooms. And there was one big, there was one sort of the, the largest room. It wasn't really a big room. And, it, and, and there was, it was kind of dangerous. There was one way in and one way out. And I remember it stunk. It smelled, it smelled like the bathrooms. Nothing was cleaned. Um, it smelled like cigarettes and beer and barf and 
and uh, it was pretty smelly. It was hot. It, there was no air in there, but that's where people, people lived there. People rehearsed there, a bunch of bands, and then they started doing shows. They built a little stage. We eventually played there in November with the Screamers two nights on a weekend. And um, then we um, um, we came back, and I think we played there New Year's Eve, 1977, New Year's Eve with uh, Black Randy and uh, Arthur J. and the Gold Cups. And then they shut it down. Um Later on in February of 78, we actually filmed a TV pilot down there. I don't know. Have you ever seen that where we're down in the mask? It's the original weirdos. And there's this, this guy named Dick Whittington or Whittinghill, I forget. And he's sort of like had this, he was filming a pilot for a show called uh, at night, LA at night or something like that. So they heard somehow they, they contacted slash magazine and they said, we want to, see what a punk show is like. So Slash, contact me. And uh, they, you, you, you guys want to play um, down in the mask? We, we couldn't charge because the mask was closed. So it's more like a, a TV, um, you know, it was just like a, a filming uh, of a TV show. And uh, everyone is down. Have you guys ever seen this video? No, I didn't know about this. Oh, so the audience is like everyone who's in a punk, a punk band, L.A. punk band at the time. You know, you see everybody, you know, the germs, the go-go's. And um, uh, uh, it's just a big mosh pit. We're, we're playing. It's the original weirdos. We play Destroy All Music. We play A Life of Crime. We play We Got the Neutron Bomb. We play Solitary Confinement, Message from the Underworld. And then they cut it off. And... Um, it's it's hilarious. Unfortunately, this guy is like talking while we're playing and everyone's dancing. The guy's like talking over over it, you know. Uh, but you know, it's like a really incredible document of the mask and what it was like. Amazing. Now, um, around the end of the seventies, a lot of younger kids from the suburbs start coming to shows and starting bands in the suburbs. Was there? Right. Was there tension between that kind of class, that generation of punk kids and your, you know, the first generation that the weirdos were a part of? Not really. I mean, we, we did shows with all those bands. We did shows with middle class. They're probably, that's what you're talking about, right? Bands like One of middle them, yeah. class. And uh, we did some shows with the gears. We did, we did shows with a lot of those bands. The only thing I, we started noticing it was getting kind of violent in the audience. There would be a lot of guys, shaved heads, and um, it just they were just pushing people around or beating people up. And we even, I think we were down in the South Bay. We were supposed to do a show at the Fleetwood, and we didn't like the look of some of the people who were waiting to get inside. They looked like they were they were ready waiting for the music to start so they could just, you know, break heads. And we just left. We didn't, you know, so that was like, there was a little bit of that going on, but most of the time. Cliff, what year would that have been? You think that was 1979. So, you know, the hardcore, you know, bands like black flag and circle jerks had already started playing. 
and you were getting uh, more of a hardcore. Um, it, it was very different. You know, the LA punk scene was one of the greatest music scenes in history. I mean, you had bands like the Bags, fronted by um, um, Alice Bag with Pat Morrison on bass, two females. Uh, we had the Go-Go's came out of the scene, all female band. There was a Charlotte Caffey played bass in the eyes. That's where we first saw her. Um, there was, there was a, a girl drummer in the controllers, several of them. There was, um, you know, um, Diane Chai bass player for the alley cats. So there was the alley cats playing. There was the dead beats. There was so many incredible bands, um, there was the Screamers. Uh, did you ever see the Screamers? I saw what was left of the Screamers in 2001. Uh, no. So the, yeah. the Screamers were like incredible. So there was the, you know, the Weirdos, the Screamers. Yeah, the Dickies came along and they got signed and then they went got to go to New York and England because they had money. There was band, the band The Dills. There was The Germs. There was... Um, you know, the plugs, one of the best bands I thought was the plugs. Um, there was the skulls. There was, you know, a lot of great groups. The wall of voodoo came out of the scene. Um, and, um, it was, it was just an incredible scene The the, the, the variety of bands and music, I basically everyone did records, whoever did records with, with danger house and bomb that, that, that was the scene and what records, you know, and, uh, so then, and then pa- and then Posh Boys started putting out albums with like compilation albums with bands like the Adolescents, and that was that really shook things up. You know, the Adolescents with that song um, what was their first big song, was, Amoeba. Uh, Amoeba. I mean, yeah. you, when you heard that on the radio, it just I couldn't believe it. It was what like became one of my favorite songs. Um, yeah, that's I, so, what I was going to uh, get to is bands like the Adolescents and TSOL right. um, and early Black Flag with Keith Morris on vocals. Like, do you think that there was that these bands were sort of uh, bridging uh, the your generation of punk to what would then become known as hardcore? In other words, do yeah. you think they fall yes. somewhere in between yes. punk and yes. hardcore? Yes, yes. And that that's what I was talking about part of the diversity of the bands. I mean, each band kind of had its own unique sound. And um, it was um, when those bands came along, of course, Black Flag, you know, eventually hooked up with uh, Henry Rollins and Kira Rossler. And then uh, the Circle Jerk, Keith uh, Morris moved from Black Flag to the Circle Jerks. They became hugely popular. So those bands are like putting out albums now. And so, you know, uh, I think even the adolescents put out an incredible album, you know, their first album. And um, um, so then I, by, by the early eighties, the weirdos were done. We, John left the band. He wanted a shot at pursuing an acting career. He told me. And um, after that, we only did reunion shows and, um, but in the early eighties, you had like hardcore bands, you know, there's, there was a scene out of Oxnard, the, the Nardcore scene and bands like ill repute, who I just did a couple shows with. Uh, did you hear about that? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, so you had, you know, uh, the Nardcore scene and those bands, I mean, I missed that whole hardcore 
thing that happened in the early 80s. I was doing a synth band. <laughs> I was in a synthesizer band called Martini Ranch, and we were playing like Club Lingerie. And I was in a whole whole different scene, you know. Um, I was working on music with uh, Mark Mothersbaugh was producing our our demo, you know, people like that. With Bill, and, Bill Paxton from Weird Science, right? Now, Bill Paxton, he came after I left that band. Oh, okay. So okay. I leave I leave Martini Ranch. The singer, uh, Billy Bones, or Steve Fortuna, uh, he was Billy Bones in the Skulls. That was another early um, L.A. punk band that was really good because that featured um, not only Billy Bones, Steve Fortuna on vocals, but Bruce Moreland and Mark Moreland. The Moreland brothers were in the Skulls. So we sort of asked Bruce to play bass in the weirdos in 78. So he leaves the skulls and um, then Mark Moreland and Bruce eventually team up with um, Stan Ridgeway to form wall of voodoo in uh, 1979. And um, so, you know, it was, it was a, a great period. And, and it was, I was really, we, we just got lucky. We were in the right place at the right time. But there were a lot of things that kind of, you know, led up to that, that, that maybe, maybe it wasn't always luck. It had to do with, you know, my, our personalities, you know, music we liked and meeting each other and, and, and putting a band together, you know, it was collaborative. And, um, and, you know, in LA, there just happened to be a lot of people like-minded you know, and they were, we were all mainly fans of bands like um, uh, Iggy and the Stooges, the Velvet Underground, the Ramones, uh, the British bands, and, um, you know, the, the New York Dolls, and um, uh, David Bowie. So when I, when, you know, we would talk to people, oh, yeah, we, we used to go see David Bowie, you know, we were you know, I'll talk to people and we were at probably at all the same David Bowie concerts, you know, and, um, but, uh, you know, they're those bands. Yeah. They were kind of a bridge to the hardcore scene. I really don't know a whole lot about the hardcore scene. I kind of missed it, but, you know, I remember, you know, there was like the dead Kennedys too. So we would used to, the weirdos never got out of California. Really. We, we would play LA and then we could drive up to San Francisco and, and play Mabuhai gardens. And we had a, we had a nice, a lot of fans in the, in the Bay area. And fortunately there was a group of videographers up there called target video. And they, they got some of the early weirdo shows, maybe, maybe not the early, but you know, from 78, 79 and 80, they, they got a lot of weirdo shows on video and all the other bands, you know, you know, there was the, the cramps were around back then too. And uh, the Dead Kennedys and um, all the, the the San Francisco scene was pretty cool. Um, the Dills were up there, the Avengers and the Mutants and um, uh, Flipper and um, and Negative Trend. So there was a, a real cool scene going on up there in the offs. And um, so we did a lot of shows in San Francisco and then in L.A. We never made it to probably a big mistake was and one of, you know, I, I, reg I kind of regret that we never got to play CBGBs. I know the Dickies did and the screamers and the Dills, maybe the zeros. And, 
Uh, so some bands made it to New York and played CBGBs, but we just were mainly um, L.A. and then San Francisco for the most part. Well, right on. I mean, no one can uh, discount the legacy of the weirdos. Oh, and Cliff, we are so appreciative of you taking the time and letting us punish you. And uh, yeah, thanks so much for doing this. I probably talk too much. Sorry. <laughs> well, we, we talk every week, so it's cool. cool. Yeah. You know? Is your it's your first time on, so we've punished everyone way more than you ever could. Oh, nice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Thanks so much. Do you feel well represented? Yes, I do. Awesome. And thanks, I, Cliff. I, you're welcome. And thank you, Ben, for lining it up. Thank you, Zach. It's nice to meet, talk to both of you. We're going to do a one's got to go on the danger house seven inches. And we are going a little out of LA because that's what's up. I didn't choose all LA. Uh, we are going to do the dill seven inch on danger house, which is which one, Ben, do you have it in front of you? 198 seconds of the dills. All right. We're doing the bag seven inch. We're doing neutron bomb, the weirdos, and we are doing the Avengers seven inch. They are from San Francisco. Don't get at me. Now, from the Cliff Roman interview, you know, the Zeros, I always consider them a Chula Vista band, but he did talk about them moving to L.A. Maybe we could have tossed that in and done like a uh, a bomb Danger House mashup, but nah. Tonight, we're just doing all Danger House. These four seven inches are all classics. This is going to be really painful. Dan, you're the first to suffer. Which one are you, which one are you losing? Hmm. So they all have like absolute, um, you know, it's something you touched on in the previous segment. This is so early that anyone who is treading into this genre and, you know, they're probably only just, I mean, the sex pistols are huge. So they're learning about that possibly, uh, coming, you know, in, in music press. And then, so this is, and a little bit of New York, but for the most part, this is its own thing springing up, you know, and wow, it's fantastic. West coast, amazing music. Um, the Avengers, I absolutely love. I love the tunefulness of her voice dancing over, um, the great, great, uh, punk music. Um, this isn't my favorite, released by them but it's my second favorite so um i really love it the bags is so interesting because like we said you know you got that film noir stuff like her legs went all the way up to the 12 o'clock hour and her stems were the you know whatever <laughs> that's my that's my film noir bullshit <laughs> but <laughs> it's uh it's really interesting on the a side and then the b side is just a crusher that babylonian gorgon is such a great song then you've got the dills which is probably the most straightforward punk out of the four and um faster shorter maybe a little bit louder um and it's really catchy in its own right too and then, um, and then you also said that they're from Carlsbad, so you know that's pretty cool. That there was a 
besides the Zeros, there was another San Diego uh, band in the mix around that time. Um, and then you've got the Neutron Bomb, which drops the Neutron Bomb on on the rest of these records. So that one's not going anywhere. That, on the strength of two epic songs, I mean, we've got the Neutron Bomb bomb slightly outshines side b but i um love both songs i think and i hate to do it the avengers and the weirdos are safe and now it comes down to dills versus bags and just for the strength of the variety that the bags give us and the um and to fuck the patriarchy, I'm keeping bags, Avengers, Neutron Bomb, and I gotta say Sayonara to the Dills. It hurts to agree with the better looking, better dressed version of me, but I'm <laughs> I'm just chasing Dan. Um I and I narrow it down the same way. It's like I can't lose this Avengers. This actually is my favorite Avengers stuff. Uh, we are the one being their greatest song by far, in my opinion. But the other two songs in the seven inch, no slouches. There's no way you can lose Neutron Bomb, Solitary Confinement, two of the greatest punk songs of all time, backed up by one of the greatest punk recordings of all time. Like those are safe, right? The yeah. Dills, it's wild. The song Class War, I love the verses so much. And then the chorus is like, you're. It's a classic, shouted, simple punk chorus. It's a pretty perfect song. I think that they are the most interesting in their first two seven inches. That song, You're Not Blank. Like, the melodies they hit there with the rhythms are really weird and cool. And it would have made it a lot closer. Because I can't lose that bag song either. You know, just think about, like, a dude in a trench coat on a rainy night trying to find some... uh you know, solace from the rain underneath like the, the light post flipping a quarter, wondering what way he's going to go, you know, like they capture that in such like a wild way, you know, that's not like a gloomy Tom Waits song, you know? And so I can't lose it. Dills, you're out of here. It hurts. Shout out lose records. Shout out Juanita's Taqueria, but, uh, Carl's bad. Sorry. Actually, that was fucking Encinitas. Carl's bad sick too, though. <laughs> so what's up? <laughs> that would be spin records in Carl's bad. And, uh, and I don't know what talk Korea, but, uh, Ben, what's your take? Yeah. Um, just for clarification, the B side of that singles, Mr. Big. Oh, you were saying if, if you're not blank had been the B side, then it would have been closer. That's what you were saying, right? That's right. Correct. Okay. Yeah. Um, it's funny. Our, our reasoning is ex- identical. All three of ours, us, because what do we think first weirdos best shit ever? Of course, that's fucking safe. And then number two, Avengers. So then it comes down between Dills and Bags. That's exactly what I thought too. And um, just to get into some of the songs, We Are The One, incredible. American and Me is also a great Avengers song. I don't know which one That's, I, I like. Even that one's more. my favorite. Yeah, which That's is not on this favorite. record. Yeah, this record is actually three songs. It's We Are The One, I Believe In Me, and Car Crash. And I Believe In Me is great because... The verses are just her just talking shit. She's not singing. She's just calling you an asshole. 
<laughs> it's so good. I love I love when punk songs do that where it's just like freeform shit talking. Um, and we are the one one of the all time great uh, punk anthems. So moving on to the ones that are in danger, Bag Survive with Babylonian Gorgon and then the Dills. Uh, the funny thing about the song Class War by the Dills is listen to that back to back with Uncontrollable Uncontrollable Urge by Devo and Misty Mountain Hop by Led Zeppelin. I swear it's the s- same riff on all three of those songs. And it makes me wonder, Devo and the Dills, both closet Zeppelin fans? And I think in the case of the Dills, quite possibly, because the way Cliff describes uh, the first time they played with the Dills, they were like a regular rock band. And then like two weeks later, after seeing the weirdos or playing with the weirdos, they, they were like a punk band. So, um, but I like Led Zeppelin. So that, that's not a mark against that song at all. Um, but I am just like Dan and Zach picking the Dills because uh, as the one that has to go or has got to go, because come on, man, the bags survive. That's, I, I, I don't want to, I don't want to live in a world without that song. Dude, it's unanimous. It hurts because those two Dill singles are ill. And I got like nice bootlegs of them in the last 10 years. So they're fun to have. They're out there. People keep your eyes peeled, support local record shops. You know what's up. But you know what? There's things called fun facts and then unfun facts. <laughs> fun facts and then unfun facts. <laughs> That's where Seven Seconds got their name, by the way. What? Um, they the uh, Kevin and his brother thought this record was one called 197 seconds of the Dills and they mm. carved it into their desk and they and the seven seconds part of it was like carved deeper or something and Kevin's like that's a cool name for a band fun fact with Ben Edge side A versus side B all right we are doing side A versus side B on the Beach Boulevard compilation came out in 1979 on uh, Posh Boy Records. And Ben, this is one of your favorite LPs of all time. Is this coming out of that first wave and going into what you call 1.5? Absolutely. Um, not, not every moment, not every band on it, uh, but there are definite, um, th- this is sort of the, Shape of Punk to Come. Ugh, I hate to quote a, a refused album, but this is sort Ooh. of like this is sort of the tipping point um for Southern California punk where like the power base is shifting away from Hollywood and into the suburbs. Um I actually wrote an entire chapter in a book about this one record and the name of the book is The White Label Promo Preservation Society 100 Flop albums you ought to know and so i really drilled down deep into this record the weird thing about this record is it's essentially three eps by three different bands so you have five songs but 
five songs each by three different bands. But the way the side breaks are, you have songs from um, all three bands on both sides of the record. So it's kind of odd. It's almost like a mirror of itself. It's like the crowd it uh, straddles the end of side A and the beginning of side B, and then you and then you move backwards into the the other the other bands but um like simple tones to me they sound like a punkified danny and the juniors which was that group from the 50s that sang at the hop and rock and roll is here to stay um especially the song tiger beat twist and then um uh christy q is like a saw a love song about a girl that one of the members was dating and they actually were supposed to be extras in the film rock and roll high school, but they, uh, <laughs> they just, uh, they just banged instead. <laughs> so they missed their, their chance at being extras in that movie. And then, um, I love the, the line where he's telling her, um, let's, let's do it on our feet at the Starwood. It's like, you're at a, you're at a, uh, you know, music venue and you're like having sex on your feet. It's kind of gross, but you know, different strokes for different folks. And then I love, how the song California is like the most like California thing ever. And, and there's that line about how the cars, they go so fast. And it's like, why would the cars go faster in California than like Michigan or Arkansas? I don't understand that, (laughs) but I accept it. Um, And then moving on to um, the Rick L Rick. So uh, if you look at this on streaming, it says, Negative trend featuring Rick, Rick L. Rick as the artist on the record itself. It just says Rick L. Rick. This is indeed the band negative trend and Rick L. Rick was their third singer. So that's the confusion. It's like Rob Fields himself, the the owner of Posh Boy Records decided like, I'm just going to rebrand this thing, Rick L. Rick, because I think he's a star. You know, it's like old school Hollywood showbiz kind of mentality. Um, but yeah, negative trender from San Francisco. So you have here, here we have another San Francisco band that's kind of on a SoCal label. And I really dig how he's got that cool baritone crooning voice, very similar to Glenn Danzig. Um, and the, and the lyrics are, you know, he mentions straight edge actually, although it doesn't relate at all to, you know, the drug free lifestyle. In fact, I think he's, I think the song black and red is might be about shooting heroin. <laughs> so, um, and, and then there, there are more political songs like mercenaries, but it's almost like sar- kind of a sarcastic, uh, a stab at, uh, politics, you know, about how these like, uh, kill for pay soldiers are involved in foreign intervention of communist countries. And so they're quote unquote, keeping America free. And, they, but, by dying for general motors. So I really dig that. And, and you also hear like call and response gang vocals on that song, which is kind of like a thing that you hear a lot more in like eighties, hardcore music, but this is like pretty early for that kind of shouted gang vocal thing. And then moving on to the crowd, um, who are actually from Huntington beach. Um, Susie is a surf rocker, which is, you know, I assume the same character that, the Ramones sang about in uh, Susie is a headbanger. It's sort of like punks love uh, Susie and Judy. Those names keep coming up 
and and rap guys like Roxanne. I don't know what it's just someone starts it and then everyone else runs with it. But I think the way I, I would describe the crowd is the influence of the damned on uh surf music. If you if you just smash together uh you know 60s instrumental surf music with the damned and so you have like supercharged uh fast punk but with more of a surf beat that's pretty much what the crowd is and i i I suspect they're a huge influence on tsol and then you have great songs like living in madrid and tricks are for kids and of course modern machine which is the one that rodney rodney bingenheimer played a lot on his radio show um but looking at the track list it looks like my favorite crowd song might be living in madrid which is on side a my favorite uh negative trend with rick l rick song would would probably be i got power which is uh on side b so the tiebreaker would be whatever my favorite simple tone song is which would probably be um fuck man i don't know i have a date tiger beat twist probably something on side a uh there's because there's more simple tone songs on side a all three of those are pretty equal so i'm going side a by a fraction of a hair the crowd bodies everything on this record those songs are so good it's out of this world everything else is cool i like the uh the meat house song a lot i like i got power a lot simple tones i can straight i can pretty much lose them sorry ben uh i guess i have a date is kind of nostalgic just to shout out the cinema beer compilations but uh <laughs> other than that whatevs the crowd, the first song, Susie is a surf rocker is whatever too also. <clears throat> but after that, those four songs are so fucking good. It kills it. And this LP kills me because they split up the crowd, like part on side A and part on side B. And I wish that I could put on this record and listen to these songs in a row on a side. Um, or I wish they were an EP or something. It's just kind of unfair that they're like the middle of this or like I can't just put on a side and, and I'm missing a couple songs. Uh, the best song from the crowd, in my opinion, is that Modern Machine song. They do that wild stuff, the which you can totally see would be something that could influence like the adolescence, uh, something like a Kids of the Black Hole. And yeah, that song is just so ill, but really those four in a row, the Living in Madrid through New Crew, these are all just like down strummed up tempo like mid tempo bangers like perfect punk songs it's wild um since i get three of them no 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 no. this hurts dude because i got three on side a but modern machine is on side b fuck it we've always argued a 10 beats a bunch of nines right so I'm taking the side with Modern Machine because it's the best song. It's the first song on side B, and so I'm going side B all day. Dan, where are you at? All right. Well, this is interesting. The crowd do represent a lot of the better songs on this compilation, but they have, in my opinion, the worst song on this comp, which is Tricks Are For Kids. <laughs> I hate it. I hate that song. And you know what? It, it totally... And I, this shouldn't, it reminded me of that awful, awful t-shirt in the nineties that was sold at many head shops that was tricks related. 
I don't know if anyone remembers it, but it should be burned in hell. Um, it's very offensive and stupid, and I can't believe that it was sold in such wide release and lots of people bought it. And you'd probably see it at some punk shows. It's absolutely horrible. Um, <laughs> Dan, I have rips so hard. I'm so offended right now because <laughs> it sounds like Ramones like playing live with like a like a leaving as character shouting over the top of it. It's like I don't know how you cannot like that. I, I'm a uh, I'm calling you. I'm pulling your punk card, dude. You're out of here. <laughs> Because it's going tricks are <laughs> It's awful. <laughs> anyway, the second worst song is Tiger Beat Twist, which is like doing a nod to what is it, Mud that did Tiger Feet, maybe, but also a nod to the fifties like music. And it just it I mean, I can see where it, it's lying. I just didn't enjoy it. Um but I have a date as Zach said, was covered by the Vandals on Cinema Beer. Goggles. Goggles, yeah. And but Zach still the- wonders where that girl has gone. <laughs> <laughs> she was a beauty. Um, but I, I really enjoy that song and uh, Black and Red. But the best song on the compilation for me, just, just beating Modern Machine by the crowd is I Got Power by Negative Trend featuring Rob R. Rock. I mean, Rick L. Rick. <laughs> that food's a star. <laughs> um, yeah. The, Side B takes it because I like California, like Ben said. It is just a pastiche of playing California games on your Sega Genesis while uh, boarding down the Hollywood Hills. <laughs> <laughs> while hanging out in HB on yeah Johnny Wood <laughs> um yeah I'm going side B because it's got the back to back uh well not quite back to back but it's got Modern Machine and then I got Power at two songs later and it just those are the best two on the comp for me um it's iconic um artwork like this is a comp that you've always seen and um it's called beach boulevard because it goes from huntington to west covina where westminster um, right yeah where um the negative trend dudes are from so it's like spanning where all the bands along that stretch of road can be located also i believe are very humble but great compatriot Bedge has uh, written something about this comp in a book. Yeah, I, I, I plugged the book at the beginning. You weren't listening. That's cool. I, uh, no offense taken. Uh, I, I just want to make... <laughs> Dude, that, you was paying attention make... to that vegan chicken masala, man. <laughs> I, I, I seriously... <laughs> And, and you, I, I want to make one correction. Negative trend is from San Francisco, but Rick L. Rick is from Covina, California. So oh, okay. you do have that connection with, I guess, Beach Boulevard. It's really kind of playing. Uh, it's really stretching the geography with, with naming this this comp Beach Boulevard. Simple tones from Rosemead, California, which is pretty close to, you know, West Covina and Covina. Um, so that's where all these bands are from. 
But if this was recorded uh, by Death Row in 1993, it would be called the Biatch Boulevard. <laughs> wow. <laughs> wow. After, after Ben had to murk uh, X's female vocals, now, now Dan comes with that. We're over, dude. No, I'm just referencing words that were, you know, the parlance of our times, man. (laughs) We're from a different time, man. That's what it is. Uh, Ben, final thoughts on this and also this episode. Well, this is some of my favorite shit. You know it. We, me and Dan are always pushing you to talk more 70s shit. And so now we have a whole episode on 70s shit and not just that, but where we uh, asterisk next to Dan's name are from Southern California. Um, I just think it's cool. Like this, a lot of this is the first shit I ever heard uh, punk wise because my dad's friend, Gene Scalati made me, uh, you know, mixtapes with, with this stuff on it. So maybe that helps me care a lot about this kind of stuff, but I do, I do really think it's great punk music that really holds up and it, and it's, they, a lot of this stuff kind of gets short shrift because I think most of these bands didn't tour and most of these bands didn't put out full albums or they didn't put out albums that were that great. The crowd being an example, this material on beach Boulevard blows away anything else they ever did. So you, that you, that, that is a kind of a formula to be forgotten somewhat, but this stuff has an audience. There's a cult for it. Uh, Everyone listen to it. Please, you'll get a better idea of where where this thing called hardcore really comes from. Yeah, and we should just say, like, the version on Spotify here is, like, an extendo version. So check Discogs if you want the real, uh, like, if you want the real track list and so forth. We'll put some of the songs on the playlist, 185milesouth.com. Click that playlist at the top of the page and listen to the music that we talk about. Dan, final thoughts on this episode? Yeah. <laughs> Did Muldoon attack? Yeah, he's he's mad. I was away for a couple of days. <laughs> um, the thing about this stuff and the majority of it, not the entire sound of all, everything we've just dis- discussed this episode, though, is how regional this does sound. You know, it is very West Coast on a lot of it, and I, I think that's awesome. I love when you know your surroundings are just filtering into your music. It's fantastic. Um, It is really cool to talk about, you know, dip back into some of the old stuff that um, perhaps in this day and age doesn't get passed down in the, in the way things did in the past uh, a lot more. Now everyone's got everything at the fingertips. So you, there's not only a few hours in the day that you can even dive into newer things and you want to go back to the stuff that you know and love. Well, if you'd never been turned on to, we got the neutron bomb and this is your first time, like maybe going and finding it and listening to it. Like I'm jealous of you because this is going to be an epic moment in your life. Right. <laughs> you know, you'll be like watching Shawshank Redemption the first time. Yeah. Yeah. Or the Godfather, something yeah. like that, you know? Right, right, um, right. But yeah, it's been fantastic talking about this stuff. I can't wait to uh, hear you two speak to Cliff. And, um, you know, it was great. Hell yeah. 
You know, I, I just want to say, like, it's really rad that, like, almost all this stuff is out there. So punk is so vast and, you know, it has a 40 plus year history, you know, and, and it's all there for you. So it's cool to find whatever lane you want. And there's nothing wrong with like, just liking, you know, I don't, I don't give a fuck if you just like hate breed, like that's cool. And there's, there's nothing wrong with that. But if you want to branch out and like get the whole history, you want to check this out. It's really cool that all this old stuff is up on streaming so there's really no excuse to not, you know, there's no excuse. You got to check it out, you know? And also I'm looking at some of you labels that haven't put all your stuff up, like crucial response records, you know, <laughs> like your shit is straight getting forgotten to history. Like even your band camp is lame. You know, you got like one song up from like each band. So you're going to get forgotten if you don't like, let your stuff be available to the people. Right. So we love that stuff. I want to talk sportswear and mean strike and eyeball. I love these bands. I love the four, the Sega dedication comp and that stuff is straight up in the hardcore ghost town, you know, except for the people that were around. And so make it available for people. Like, what are you doing? People like that. They got the rights to records. You're sitting on it, put it up there because like people need to discover it. Every little like building block in this big, beautiful beast that we call hardcore punk rock is important. And I want it to be out there for everyone to figure out. Like, it's 2022. Like, we're not living in the 90s. We're not living in the 80s when, like, there's, like, stuff's not available. You know what I mean? Like, everything should be available now. Like, that's just the way the world is, you know? So put it out there. Let people figure it out. And uh, that's all I got. You guys want to comment on my rant, or should we wrap this up? No, I, I, th- I think that it's... Imagine you're a label person, right? And you're just sat there basically being lazy. How do you think the people who put that music out and trusted you to curate their output feel that you aren't putting it up? Like now they're getting forgotten because you're twiddling your thumbs. And I think, I think that's a very valid point. Yeah, dude. Handle business people. Ben, you got anything or are we out of here? Um, I, I'm not one to talk. I've been in many bands that are not on streaming. Uh, I, I, I agree with you, but I'm lazy. So that's where I stand. Yeah, dude. Hey, Chris Grande, put that field of fire shit up on, uh, Spotify. Cause Ben's never going to do it. All right, everyone. We'll talk to you a week from today. That would be next Monday about more hardcore. Goodbye. <laughs> okay. <laughs>